Welcome to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, we bring you new ideas and insights from business leaders, military leaders, and thought leaders. Ideas and insights that will help you think more deeply and lead more effectively, so that you can better navigate your complex world. Here again are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker Bryce Hoffman, and former Royal Air Force Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. I am Bryce Hoffman, president of Red Team Thinking and author of the book Red Teaming, broadcasting to you from sunny California. I am joined, as always, by my excellent partner, Marcus Dimbleby. Hello there, broadcasting to you from sunny London for a change, which is nice at this time of year. Great to be here on another show with the good old Bryce Hoffman. And we have a really cool guest today. Jason Coyle. Jason is the head of our fire practice at Red Team Thinking, and he can explain what that is. But Marcus, tell us a little bit about Jason. I will. Let me shed some light on Jason Coyle. So Jason is a U.S. Army veteran with over 25 years of experience in wildland and structural firefighting. In addition to overseeing the operations of an all-hazard fire agency operating in some of the most complex terrain in the United States, He also serves as an operations chief on a national Type 1 incident management team, where his focus is strategic and operational plan development, and he spent over two years deployed on incidents. Jason has completed a postgraduate study in leadership and is currently pursuing a PhD in performance psychology, where his concentration is on the role that applied critical thinking plays on decision quality in complex environments. I can't wait to have a conversation about all of this. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bryce. Glad to be here. So tell us a little bit more about about your background and and how your experiences on the fire lines led you to become interested in applied critical thinking and decision quality and distributed decision making, all these cool things that we love talking about. Yeah, well, man, when I think about my experiences and how they led me there, I I think of a a long list of of um, of of mistakes that I have made over the years. (laughs) And. Anyway, Join the club. It's it's funny too because the the mistakes that I made, you know, I think, and maybe everybody follows this kind of this kind of a, a path, if you will. It's initially this makes mistakes were made because I didn't know better, and then pretty soon the mistakes were made because I thought I knew best, and Ouch. and those were the ones that really stuck with me, and, and those actually are the ones I think that really drove me to to want to figure out a better way to do it. And when I say it, I mean lead in that environment, lead especially in those complex incidents. And and that led me to um to be involved in some instances had some some bad outcomes, um, you know, places where we lost firefighters. I looked at it and I said, we we gotta do better. We don't control everything in our environment. We have to accept that. Um, you know, we have to accept that the plan we made the night before isn't going to not only is it not going to be right about everything, is that it's probably not the best plan. And the people that are out there executing it have strengths and expertise and ability to adapt to unforeseen change. That when I take them that away from them through a rigid planning process, we lose the ability to be successful. So those are kind of some of the ways that I um I, I advance and continue to advance my 
thinking through a series of not so bright ideas that I've used to to improve my system. Wow. And you're you're making decisions in some of the most high stress environments imaginable. I mean, as as most people probably are aware, though not as acutely as you, the nature of wildland fires has changed pretty drastically over the past decade, has it not? I think it has. I mean, I, and when I when I say that I that I think it has, I one of the main reasons that that I arrive at that is because there's decisions that I made based on experience before that when I apply to a situation that I think is similar, uh, recognizing that it may or may not be similar, but that we, I, I think is similar enough that we should have success. In the last few years, we have a difficult time having success with that. And that has caused us to have to be like, wait a minute, this, you know, learning from experience is important. And, uh, you know, we talk about slides in our slide tray, which probably need to think of a different uh, way to explain that since nowadays slide trays are a little hard to find. But I understand the metaphor, though, is that we have these things that we go to, we go back to constantly. But like in your in your line of work, the size of fires has changed. The frequency of fires has changed. The the pace of spread of fires have changed and the and and. So not only do you have bigger fires, you have them happening simultaneously. So there's less resources. And that's got to make your job as, as a commander who's in charge of marshalling all these resources, all these, all these firefighters, all these equipment from different agencies, federal, state, local, and all this stuff, just incredibly complex. You know, it's, it's, it's complex and, and it reminds me too. So there's, so a little bit about, Specifically, what I what I do when I'm on those fires is the the system we use. It's a hierarchical system. It's um it's very similar and was based on uh, you know military rank structure. And there's a an incident commander who is basically hired by the different agencies that are being affected by the fire, the hurricane, the the shuttle recovery effort, whatever it is. And they, they delegate authority to managing that incident to the incident commander. And then there is an operations section chief, or two or three of them, that is the role that I fill, that it's our job to take that broad guidance, that leader's intent, if you will, from the, the host unit and distill it down into objectives and then execute on those objectives to achieve a successful outcome. So... Embedded within that is two processes that are distinct but complementary and that we, we used to try to just apply one set of rules to. So our planning process is like the military be like their MDMP, the military decision making process in the US military. And, right. and so that process is, it's necessarily a linear process. You have a finite amount of time to develop a plan that you're going to utilize the next day. And we develop a written plan every day. We have a bunch of people helping us do that, but we execute on that plan. And in there, we have task, purpose, and end state for each one of the different portions of the fire that we call divisions and how they're going to execute in that part to, to accomplish their piece of the objective or, you know, in the military, probably subordinate lines of effort to achieve that, you know, the, the larger line of effort. And they were like, you know what? These fires are lasting longer. 
they're lasting longer. The situations aren't as obvious. We need to become more strategic. You know, I think we could, we could say that we have a lot of people that definitely demonstrate tactical excellence. So if we're tactically sound, let's just scale that up. Let's scale up that same level of thinking, that same type of process that we use on the tactical level up to the strategic level and we should be successful. So our, what we call strategy is probably more akin to operational design. It's that, that phase, that piece between the larger strategy of all the different fires that are being managed and the, the plan that's being executed. So we tried that first. I, um, I have a, a very vivid memory of the first time that I decided to work on improving how we presented a strategy. We need buy-in from everybody, right? We need the people we're working for. If, if we're not going to go directly after something, we need for them to understand why we're not going to go directly after it. When maybe the best uh, course of action right now is no action. Um, and when the best course of action is just immediate action. And because there's risk with each one of those. And they, they, while they may not assume the, you know, the physical risk or the risk of force, uh, they certainly assume the risk of mission. The first time I did this, and I had, I had a bunch of big heads in there and from all the way up to the region. So the, in the Southwest United States, and I presented my strategy and I had pulled on every bit of predictive science that we had available, modeling on the fires. The, I met the incident meteorologists look at the near term fire behavior. We had long term climatological looks, had it all together and presented it and I asked if there's any questions. And there's no questions. So, you know, me being proud of myself, like I am lots of times when I work on something for a long time, I'm like, man, I nailed it. <laughs> and so they all walked out of the room and I'm feeling like, yep, everybody's aligned with what we got going on. Everybody's going to be behind us as we move forward. And my incident commander, um, love her to death. Her name's B. And she looked at me and she said, they didn't understand a word you said. I was like, wow. And that it was a very humbling moment. And, you know, a few things I learned from that that I, I'm sure I've had to relearn them a few times since then, about 10 years ago, but was that you can present something and you can have this whole narrative that you're going on. But if people don't understand what you're saying, then it, it, it's meaningless. It can be the coolest words together. Basically, in a fireway, it was the same as people saying, hey, we're going to do the right things for the right reasons, and we're going to make sure that we focus on the – those words don't mean much, and neither did mine, even though I thought they had meaning because I didn't communicate any that meaning. So, Well, this is why storytelling is so important, right? Right. <clears throat> is, is it doesn't matter how good your analysis is. It doesn't matter how penetrating the insights that you find are. It doesn't matter – how great your strategy is if you can't communicate it to people in a way that they not only can understand it but they can connect with it they can resonate with it then you've lost you you've lost the opportunity and and it's like you know i this this goes back to caveman days right i mean you think about this Back in back back when we were all you know walking around as hunters and gatherers, you know if you if you had said to people, look, there's a there's a bunch of brilliant red berries over there. We shouldn't eat them; they're poisonous. Most people would have quickly forgotten that and eaten the red berries and, and died. 
But, you know, if you were the, the chief and you said, hey, everybody, everybody remember Groog? Groog was such a great guy. We all loved Groog. He entertained us so much. And here's, here's poor Groog's wife and, and child sitting here around the fire with us today. Where's Groog? Well, well, Groog ate the red berries. And now Groog is gone. Don't be like Groog. Don't leave your, 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 your wife and, and child here uh, without you. Don't eat the red berries. Now that sticks with people because now every time everyone looks at the red barriers, you're thinking about poor Groog. Yeah, and I was just thinking to follow on from that as well, you've got to have this ability to check people's understanding as well. It's not just a matter of asking that simple question, do you get it? Because you're going to get those head bobbing, oh yeah, we understand, and they don't because nobody also wants to put their hand up and be that that guy in the room who thinks that everyone else gets it except them. You know, the old, there's never a stupid question, but people always feel that and therefore they don't want to ask that question. And therefore, everybody walks out of the room, and you know that half of them haven't understood it. But it's having that capability to explicit ex- extract that information from them to make sure that what you've conveyed has been understood. And as Bryce said, if you do it in a story, it's relatable. But then also having that ability to check and engage them to make sure they know what they're going to be doing and understand what the intent is from that commander's intent and the mission intent from the beginning. Yeah, and you know what? In this case, I, I also... I thought that I was smart enough to figure it out on my own because I pulled in the data from all the different people and I compiled it. And then I, I presented, I talked to everybody about what we're going to do. And so the, the, the implied assumption there is either the unstated assumption there is that me going out and gathering all the pieces of information, I gathered up all the right information and I was considering everything that needed to be considered in the execution of this plan. And all I needed to do was pitch that to them. And then they would be like, cool, Jason's you know, figured it all out. Oh, well, this goes back to Adam Smith's rational choice theory too, right? <laughs> right. That, that, you know, this, this, this theory that people believed for the last three centuries, that human beings are fundamentally rational actors. And that if we're provided with enough information and the right information, we will always make a good decision. And that's the theory that that folks like Daniel Kahneman, Amos Tversky, Gary Klein, all of these 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 experts in cognitive psychology have just just proven is totally false. That's how we wish we made decisions. And as you as you both know, the way we actually make decisions is influenced by this dizzying array of cognitive biases and blind spots that that skew those decisions. And if you're not addressing, if you're not accounting for that, then the best information in the world is going to be distorted by that, that imperfect lens that we all have. Yeah. When we look at the world. And I think as Jason mentioned earlier, what worked before doesn't work anymore because of this complex environment we're in. And we talk about VUCA, H, you know, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity that you're facing now at the front line that 10 years ago was a very different but similar situation. Do you think that, okay, well, what worked then works now? And it clearly isn't doing. So these things are evolving at such a pace that you need that frontline adaptability. As you said, and it's that strategic intent, but are you enabling that decision-making capability to be devolved down as far as possible so those smart people at the front line can react accordingly when it's immediate and needed? Otherwise, they can take the time and respond and plan and replan accordingly to meet the requirements they're facing day by day. You're so right, Marcus. I mean, here in California, 
couple of years ago, our, after one of the, the, the big series, not just one big fire, after we had three catastrophic fires at once, our governor came on, on television and, and told the people of the state, hey, look, you need to understand something. We've reached a point now where we can't save everything. That, in, that there are too many fires happening too frequently and, and, and our resources are stretched too thin that every fire command team has got to make those yeah. types of difficult choices you're talking about, Jason, about what gets saved and what doesn't get saved. Because the the days in which every every house is going to get saved, every everyone's going to get evacuated, everything's going to be fine, are over. And that's oh, a hard that's change. Such a to tough make. call because you all want, you know, it goes back to what we talked about before. You know, what are we choosing not to do? Not to save property, not to save, you know, wow. And then to not do that, but then to try and save too many things and then you fail because you've spread yourself too thin. That is such a hard call for a leader at the front line, Jason. It really is. And, and I think that you guys have hit on the one of the things that kind of keeps me up at night now and going into this next fire season, which is, you know, by all indications is probably going to be another another one for the record books. But is that, you know, so two things, right? So we have people that are on these incidents that have been successful in the past and something drives them. They came to service because they wanted to make a difference. You spend two or three years out there digging lines to nowhere, making sure, getting things done and having it burned over the next day, burned over the next day. And how fulfilling is that going to be? It's dirty, nasty work. The people that we depend on, the hotshot crews, they, I mean, there's nothing sexy about that. But they go out and do it and they do it well but they do it well because there's something that rewards them in it. And as these yeah. situations change where, we, where we're less successful, how much of a reward are people going to find? And then when we have, like yeah. we have right now, difficult time filling fire positions, which has never been a thing in the past, how much it comes back to what they don't get to satisfy them when they go out on those difficult incidents. It's not like they want it easy. They just want the opportunity to be successful. But they physically can't because of the complexity of the situations they're facing. Now, yeah, that's devastating, isn't it? And, and the impact that has on their morale, their intent, their wish to do the right thing when you know you can't has got to have an impact. And as you as a leader, commanding over that, enabling that capability and trying to foster it is tough, real tough. This is a broad issue, too. I mean, if you think about it, guys, this is what's happening with COVID, too. You know, as, as people all over the world kind of realize, it, you know, everything that all the levers that get pulled, it's still here. It's still spreading. You get more and more people just throwing their hands up in the air and giving up because they're not getting, you know, they're not getting, you know, they're not getting the reward for doing the right thing. And, and that's hard. I, I don't, if any of you have, have know the study that I'm going to reference here who are listening or watching put put a note in the comments so that, that I can find this. Somebody told me once there was a study done and I, I, I got to look up. I don't know who did it back in the sixties or seventies when, when they could still be cruel to animals, unfortunately, um, where some cognitive psychologists had the question of, you know, first for decades, people have done experiments where they, they punish animals to, to make them do the right thing. You know, you get a you get a shock if you do the wrong thing. You get a reward if you do the right thing. And some particularly cruel scientists said, "What happens if you just give people, give animals random shocks constantly?" And what they found is 
they like just they just stop trying. They just they just lie down in their cage and get shocked and don't even react ultimately because because there's no there's the brain can't figure out what the right thing to do is anymore. And unfortunately, with all of the 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 kind of dominoes toppling at once in the world today, I think there's a lot of situations where people find themselves into something similar. The the other thing is is that I mean this truly is a complex adaptive system this fire world. And so, you know, we, we have everything that occurs on the physical side. And then we have the, the socially constructed environment around it, whether it's the houses that are moving further into the interface, whether it's the, the political leadership that demands action that wants to blame it on something that somebody did or didn't do back in the day. And then we have individuals perception of risk and individuals tolerance for operating in, in, in VUCA in ambiguous environments. And then we put it all together and we think that we can write a recipe to fix it and that we can do that and then tell someone how to fix it. We're high if we think that, you know, if we, the best we can do is give people decision space in the field and let them know what those sideboards are. Yeah. Because we're not there and, and we don't, you know, you know, like David Snowden said, right? If we're, if, if we don't probe, sense and respond when we're in that, when we're dealing with complexity, then the assumption is that we have, that we know what we're dealing with and we know how to solve it. And we don't. And we, we, we can't script it. That is it, Jason. You nailed it there. If you're in these complex adaptive system problems, but you're trying to give an ordered plan to deliver the solution, which we know doesn't work, you have to be probing and you can't probe from up on high. It has to be those down at the fire, down at the front line able to do that, able to sense, and then have the empowerment and they enabled to respond accordingly with the support from above, I guess. And if, you, if you're applying that hierarchical military structure, how does that work? Where have you seen the sort of pecking order start to you know, have cracks form quickly? Well, I, you know, it's, I, I think part of it is that, so I'm going to go back a ways here, but if we start with, there's a fire called the Pastigo fire that was up around, um, in the uh, Wisconsin, I think is where it was, but it was in the Midwest. And at the same time as the Great Chicago Fire, burned something like half. Yeah, burned something like half a million acres. Yeah, destroyed a bunch of houses, destroyed communities. Yeah, same day as the is the yep. Chicago yep. Fire. Yeah, exactly, same day, I believe. Yeah, and and so the Chicago Fire communities came together to help Chicago, and codes were changed, and everything changed. The fire was just an unfortunate circumstance. Fast forward to nineteen ten. And the big burn when the fires burned over a million acres across the northwestern side of the United States and wiped out complete towns. I think it was Wallace, Idaho was one of the towns. But then we're like, oh, we got to fix something. We got to change it. So, you know, 1916, 1917, new policy on fires. And then we had this thing called the 10 a.m. rule where the next day by 10 a.m., we're going to, we, all fires that are detected should be suppressed. And we said, yep, yeah, we got it. And then a couple of years happened where we blow it. And then we're like, we just need more people. We need more people. We need to get there quicker. So to get there quicker, we got to find them faster. So we need to, we need more lookout towers and we need more fire roads and we need more people to go put them out. So fortunately about that time, the thirties, you had the CCC was available. They built fire roads, built towers and put out lots of fires. So we had a system that, yeah, it worked. Got worse again in the, in the late forties, like smoke jumpers. If only we could insert people by airplane into these remote fires, you know, we could get it, we could get there early and put them out quicker. And pretty soon 
you got to come to the realization that things keep changing. What we did with the 10 a.m. rule, the, the fuels didn't go away. They just, you know, you, you instead of one fire burning a thousand acres every hundred years, you have 10 fires within there that until they get on the right day, maybe only burn an acre or two because we get there at the perfect time to put them out. But the one fire that starts on that bad day, now it can run, you know, the Soberanes near in California there, three entire drainages above, I mean, huge drainages above Highway 1. And now they're all the same age class brush because they all burned at the same time. So what's going to happen? This homogenous growth of everything until pretty soon you get a drought year and there's enough dead and all that manzanite and everything else that grows there. And then you burn, maybe this next time it's four drainages or five drainages. We just need to realize that we we don't control all the inputs that are necessary to solve the problem. And we need to look at new ways to do it besides just throwing more people at it. You know, more money, more people. It's it's not gonna work. And it's not just it's not just the the climate and environmental factors either. You've now got all these social factors that you touched on that are impacting your job in in in, in crazy ways. I, I know we've talked about this that here here up where I live uh, a couple years ago you had international drug cartels interfering with your firefighting efforts at a fire that you were one of the commanders on right I mean coming in and, and forcing firefighters at gunpoint to use their water trucks to water their marijuana fields yeah you know and it was it was interesting because on that incident <laughs> we're initially my brain, so we're still thinking how we get put the fire out. Hey, there's still this active piece of fire there we need to work on. And it wasn't me. Somebody else is like, well, let's just pull out of that part. I looked at my mom. Yeah, let's. But we're programmed to fix the problem. And you're right. We're, we're Now we're trying to fix the problem in an environment where, where, where we, don't, we don't control everything. And it's interesting because in our environment, we our leadership approach has to be that people willingly act in accordance with what it is that we want. Because, you know, like I said, it's decentralized. Right? I mean, that's a tenet of any decentralized leadership. They they need to be able to do that. And we get frustrated when they don't. We being, you know, the, the other people, my myself and other people like me in, in the role that I play. And if if we want that, then, then we, we need to take their perspectives and capabilities into consideration in the first place. And it can't just be that we just – we we need to accomplish this. Hey, it says we're supposed to, you know, get all the way around this fire. We need to put that section out. It needs to be the fact that we're like, hey, what are these guys worried about? Well, they're worried about the fact that they're squished between a high crime area and a potential fire, and they don't know where they can go and they can't get enough roadblocks in place to keep the place safe. Why should they we shouldn't ask people to operate in that environment? But we do. Well, this gets down to distributed decision making. And that is a topic that we will talk about when we get back from this short break. Stay tuned. Does your organization have a red team culture? Is it an innovative, learning and resilient culture that is continually improving, continually adapting and continually evolving to meet the new challenges and opportunities each day brings? Or is it reactive? siloed and hamstrung by command and control leadership that doesn't like to be challenged or questioned? Does your organization encourage diversity of thought and ensure that everyone's voice is heard? Or does it silence dissent and promote those who toe the line? Take our free assessment 
and find out how your organization rates. There's a link to it in the notes below. Let's see how you score. Welcome back. During the break, Jason, you were sharing a really cool story about a a fire that uh, you worked on. Can you share that with our our, our audience as well? Yeah. So it's just I, th- I think it's it's representative of the challenge that that we face more and more these days. So there is um the, you know, with the with whether it's climate change, whether it's beetles that kill the trees, whatever. There's uh, a lot of places in the in the Western United States where we go on fires that there's a lot of dead trees and. And so you're the person that's managing that area that um, a lot of the local resources that respond to, if you work for the Forest Service, say, they work for you. You're accountable for them. You know, if you're that, that district ranger or that, that forest supervisor. And so you get a fire that starts from lightning and one of those areas where there's a lot of snags. There's a lot of dead standing trees. And you can see the risk to firefighters that exist by putting them out in those snag patches, we call them. And on one particular incident, there was a, not very far, a year or two years earlier, very near where this fire started, there was a, a fatality um, from a tree strike of a firefighter. So a tree fell and killed the firefighter. And unfortunately, it's one of the most more dangerous things we deal with is, is, is trees. So this occurs, and now you have a new fire there. And on one hand, you have aggressive firefighters who want to go in there and put it out. They say, yeah, we... um." You know, we can go in there and we get it. And there's good rationale for that, right? You you expose, you, you enter an environment that's higher risk, but shorter duration, and then you remove the problem, at least for that day. And then the other alternative, one of the other alternatives is you back up to where the we call them the values. Just generically speaking, whether it's a, a cell tower, a, a infrastructure for a, a railroad or a community, it's values. So we have... And if the values could be threatened, we call them values at risk. So you look at the best spot between where the fire is and those values, and then you decide that that's where you're going to put your line. So normally when you're up in the, in the Northern Rockies, those everything's the, the, the values are usually in the valley. And so you go down along the edge of those, those values start putting in line and you use mechanized equipment to do it. You cut down a bunch of trees right along the edge and prove stuff. Uh, low risk to firefighters, and then you just gonna you got to burn it out though, right? You got that fire is going to come down, and if you wait until the fire picks a day, if it's got a mile to go, say, and it doesn't move incrementally, it there's days when the wind comes up and it moves a lot. There's days, and, and so you're, you're looking at all those variables, and then you're saying, hey, you know what? If um it's getting closer to the to the end of August. And the closer you get towards the end of August in that country, the more dry cold fronts you get. The more dry cold fronts you get, the more heavy winds you get with no, with no precipitation with them. So you're seeing all that in your head. And then you, the team that's managing that fire, maybe this fire has been going for a couple of weeks. And so it's continuing to move down off the mountain. They've got this line in around there. Sooner or later, you got to light it. And then that's, that's you lighting it. If you don't light it, the fire comes across the line and, and does damage and, you know, some ways it's kind of off or not. And so if you do light it though, and your fire causes a problem, for whatever reason, it's, you're more accountable. 
And I don't know if you're really more accountable, but the perception is certainly that you're more accountable. And now you have that person that made a decision in the first place that was a very well-intentioned decision to keep people out of harm's way that has been getting beat up in that community for the last however long, two or three weeks because of smoke, because the fire is still there, because of everything that's going on with it. And now maybe they're more tolerant for risk. And now you have a team that comes in there that says, hey, it's you know, we just got called in here to manage this fire. The other team's done their time and transitioned out. And we got to light this, but we don't want to light it. We don't feel like it's a good spot. We want to improve it. We want to go. So it creates a problem. And I think one of the main reasons it creates a problem is that at that initial moment when we make a decision, it's very difficult to perceive it, like strategy versus budget. Yeah. Right. You make strategic decisions and you're pushing those way out. So it's fun to talk about cool things you're going to do in your strategic plan. <laughs> but that year when you have to allocate budget resources to meet the objectives in your strategic plan, right? those trade-offs are a lot more real. You know, you're, oh, we're going to fund R&D or we're going to put more money into this, you know, what? And, and so that happens on fires too. And then unfortunately the narrative to the public a lot of times is this, looking back, well, you should have just went in there and got it. You should have just done this. You should have just done that. Good old hindsight. Yeah. Everybody's and an in expert my mind, suddenly too. What we should do is we should make sure that we're engaged in processes that allow us to surface all of the potential implications so we make a decision that is at least considerate of all the different impacts. Right. And it's still a lot of uncertainty and there's still a lot of it, but there's certain things we do know and having a frame where you put all those together and so you can look at them and you can have a conversation about them, to me, that's something that we can certainly do a better job of. Well, I think that's what we try to do with Red Team Thinking is provide that frame. And honestly, yeah. when I was listening to you talk about that, Jason, I was thinking how how similar this is to the situation that the, the U.S. military found itself in in Iraq. When the the what they thought had been a relatively easy victory was suddenly unraveling into this massive insurgency, and they realized that the that a lot of the reasons why that was happening had to do with a failure to look at this problem in a truly three dimensional way, to look at the problem not just from a military point of view, but from a social point of view, from an economic point of view, from from a from a uh, point of view of Maslow's law, you know, all these different things. And so a lot of the tools and techniques that that they developed for, for decision support red teaming that we've been involved for red team thinking are designed to help decision makers look at the second and third order effects of their decisions, look at how the problem and how the decisions that they're contemplating are going to look from the perspective of other stakeholders. Look at how those stakeholders have a have a role to play in the success or failure of the plan and look at how different ways that the plan could unfold in the future and how those could impact all these variables. And it's it's really trying to get at that interconnectivity, which it sounds like what you're talking about very much on these fire lines. And it's a lot of yes. And and it's a lot of what led me to to start looking for for different alternatives to the way we were doing it. Um, uh, a good friend of mine, another ops chief, his name's Todd Abel. He and I went and did a, a project that we went around the in the in the Northern Rockies and then in the Southwest 
and, and looked at how risk was communicated and some of the different challenges with risk communication, both up and down. And then we wrote a document that we, that we provided for everybody to, to look at it. And it wasn't our lessons. It was the, the, the issues that were people were facing in the field. And, you know, that was certainly one of the main things that came out of it is like, you, you have this hotshot crew that's frustrated because, you know, in this case, say the hotshot crew wants to go in there and get that fire when it's little. And they understand that they're going to assume risk. They, there's a certain amount of experience that, it, that everyone has to have to lead that crew. There's a certain amount of experience that they have to have to be members of that crew, the amount of training they have to have. They, they, they understand what um, happens if someone gets struck by a tree. And they want to, and if they want to go in there and get it, then, then they're, they, they are probably, I would submit, aware of the physical risks. Now, if going in there and getting it means that we're going to go in and get the next 10 or the next 100 into those snag patches, and we're going to be dealing with the same problem and exposing people more and more. So like the aggregate risk is something that as an organization or as a leader, you're not willing to, um, you're not willing to take on. I get that. That's different. But that's where this process comes in, right? That's right. where getting people on board to surface all that stuff. It doesn't mean I'm right and you're wrong. It means that we have different perspectives of looking on this because each one of us is accountable for a different outcome. And I, and I think at least, well, I, I think that that matters. And I'll tell you why I think that matters. Cause so on our incident management team, you know, I used to run the meetings. And the way I would run the meetings is I would start these at the beginning of the day. And then right before we go out and we go to our operational brief, we brief everybody. And then at the end of the day, I'd run the meeting and we'd close everybody out. And, and I realized that that's, it just wasn't very helpful. Right. And so now what we do, and it's, it's funny because we stumbled upon this in the COVID environment because we had to, but we we're in different places. And so we'd get on Zoom and we would, I'd have a map pulled up and I go around the divisions and I tell somebody, Hey, walk us through your division. And tell us what you got going on there and what your challenges are you're facing. And so they would have to articulate that as they're going around. So that's hard. Speaking to a map when somebody else is using the pointer, you, you get good at knowing your piece of ground. And so, and I got better at appreciating the context that they were operating in. And I would say that that took three quarters of the meeting to do it that way. And then I'd ask them, hey, what, define the, tell me the problem. I wouldn't say define the problem. I said, what's the biggest problem that you see in the next operational period with meeting the objectives? He said, okay. And then we talk about developing approach. And I wouldn't, I used to make it more, hey, what do you, what's your guys' plan? What's your probability of success? So I tell somebody to develop a plan. And then I ask you what the probability of success is. Well, it, it, I mean, I guess if you thought you were shit, you'd say, you know, this is my plan and my probability of success is zero. But that's not the people we get out there. And that's not the leaders that we get on type one incident management teams. And so their probability of success was always very high. I was like, this is, this is a useless exercise. <laughs> so optimism bias. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and you set them up, you set them up for failure. And it, it would usually start something like, well, if I get the resources that I said I need. And, and so they put a couple of qualifiers in there to give them a little space. Right. And who wouldn't? Yep. Then CYA. Do this. <laughs> yep. But then you go around the, the fire and you do that. And then you let them know that. Even though going through this process is better, I understand that your answer is provisional. This is day one. Right. You don't have, you don't have it all figured out. And I shouldn't set the expectation to create a false anchor that you do. If I let you have space to come up with a plan, an immediate plan, and then build on that plan, and it's, it's okay. It doesn't, it's not contrary to how we 
quantify success for you to come in and change something because you have new knowledge or because you're working with those crews that are out in the field and they've helped you see something better. We've improved our decision quality. We've improved the outcome of the incident. And so those are just different ways we applied that up and down that I think have really had value. So many points. So many great points there, Jason. I'll try and hit on a few. Now, this is what we're talking here is old school project management. This linear linear concept that things will happen consequentially in the agreed timeline with all the constraints understood, it's just BS. It doesn't happen anymore. And whether you're fighting fires, whether you're delivering software, doesn't make any difference. Building a house, these things are changing so dynamically. And you nailed it. That word you said then, you've got to give them space. And for me, giving those people who are going to be executing that plan the space to think, to discuss with you, to educate you on what they're thinking and vice versa, and to look at it holistically and see what might happen. Because you said day one, what comes on day two? We can only guess. We can only look at the weather forecast. We can only use a bit of experience, but we don't know until it's here. And if we go linear and rigid, then that's when bad things are going to happen. So this flexibility in thinking, in understanding, in discussion, it goes back to the old planning up front without the plan is crucial. And that provisionality too that you mentioned, the be- the ability to make provisional decisions. I think back to, you know, the the Israeli defense intelligence folks that have their own version of red teaming. One of the things that they that they credit to its success is that the folks who are in that job don't have to be right all the time because they found that if the if you judge people you know if you if you say your analysis has to be has to be correct you can't make a mistake then you then you limit their thinking and they they may have something they have 90% confidence in that's really critical for you to hear as a as a decision maker but they're not going to share it because they don't have 100% confidence so giving people not just the space temporally to think but giving them the space to think. I mean, it's fuzzy logic, right? I mean, fuzzy logic was a huge breakthrough in, 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 in yeah. artificial intelligence. We have to let people apply fuzzy logic too. Fuzzy logic is that you, you have a probability, you, you have a high degree of confidence in this decision, but it's not 100%. And that's how, that's how machines are able to make such good analyses because they don't, as long as you tell them they don't have to be 100% accurate, they can, they can apply that. But we often make people feel like they have to be 100% accurate in their decisions, and it's a mistake. All the time. All the time. And it's that constant, as you said, what's your plan? It's good. Is it going to succeed? Yes. Percentage rate, 100%. Yeah. You know, it, and you talked about it before, you know, rag status. Is your plan red? No, it's green. Are you sure? It looks a bit amber. No, it's green. It's green. Until the last minute and suddenly it goes red again. And then you get that massive falling off a cliff at the last point when it's often too late to to recover. And you can't do that in your world because people people die, you know, and it's such a huge responsibility. And changing the way you approach this and the way you're thinking about this differently has got to be the way forward. Yeah. And and I and I think that you know, the other thing that this whole process did to me for me, and, and for me specifically, is it turned it into a joint learning process. Before me coming up in front and saying the meeting, this is, and asking them questions, it was, you know, it was me with, with my years of experience helping them understand what they needed to do. And now there's this exchange of information on both sides that helps me understand the problem that they're dealing with. So I can take that back up and work with the leaders to get support for what's going on, to get them, to, them to understand 
what is likely to occur and what we're trying to accomplish and what we think is going to be successful. And, you know, it's just, I think what I heard from both of y'all too is that we, we have this, like, this notion that we operate in a closed system right. sometimes and that we just think that, all right, we can, all the rare, relevant variables to our success are identified if we're good enough, right? If we're, if we're good enough, we know all the, we can put boundaries on what, what we can expect and that the, the only the variables that we have identified are the ones that are going to influence the outcome. And one of the first things I think we've got to do is we've got to realize, hey, you know, this is a real world system. It's not some made up theoretical system. Right. We, um, the, the outcomes can't be inferred by just individual people's choices. You can be the best guy ever and have a bad day because there are certain things that are beyond your control and different people interact. And, you know, socially we were on a fire where we had to deal with armed militia trying to protect their home because they thought the fire was started by Antifa <laughs> and that they were afraid. This is real. And that they're afraid that they were going to come in there. And then QAnon came and started taking some of the sound bites out of some of the presentations we made and was using them out of context to improve their situation. You'd never think of having to deal with that in a fire, but it created additional risk, right? physical risk to the firefighters in the field. Well, we see this all the time in business, though, too. You know, businesses, this is this is probably one of the number one things that that I talk about when I'm working with individual companies is that that people can come up with a brilliant plan, but they approach the plan as a closed system, like you say. And and they'll say, wow, look at this. We've, we've looked at all these different variables. We've created this optionality and stuff. And and, and then one of the things I always say is, folks. Remember, as you're sitting here congratulating yourselves on this beautiful plan that you've created, how do you know that your competitor isn't sitting in a room just like this, drinking stale coffee just like you are, and coming up with their own plan that's going to do something completely different that could obviate this entirely? And you, the only way that you can execute this with confidence is to execute it with the understanding that it's provisional, and that you may have to you may have to adapt because things could change. You know, nobody. I, I was just talking about this in, in a class yesterday. Uh, if you were sitting, this is going to Marcus is going to feel the pain on this on this example. You know, <laughs> if you were a homeowner in Britain three months ago and coming up with your your annual budget for your house and thinking about how much you're going to pay for natural gas, you would think you had sorted that out. And you'd be sorely wrong now, wouldn't you, Marcus? Uh, oh, oh, yes. To the tune of several thousand pounds a year, you'd be out. Right. Yeah. And and, and that's, that's an individual. So what if you're a company that needs natural gas? Nobody, I, I would submit that no company was thinking a year ago about the impact a potential Russian invasion of Ukraine was going to have on their business operations. And yet this is the world we live in today. And folks, it's not going to get any simpler. As, as all of these things are interconnected and as, as one domino topples, it topples two more, you know, and it just becomes this, this cascading event. And that's why it's become so important to, to view decision-making as an ongoing 
practice rather than a process that that is that is you do and it's finished and you and you go on you fight the fire you put it out you go home yeah how long did this last fire in in, in the, uh, the 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 Sierras uh, here in, in California last year last Jason it was what more than three months right was it- yeah there's been a few fires especially in California last year that that you know basically one third of all the resources in the United States were committed to two or three fires wow. and um and yeah and and, and it's interesting too because you know, what you're talking about well actually what both of you guys talked about there was Maybe think is that you know we still need planning tools that reinforce causality minded outcomes because we you know at the end of the day if we're going to put a spike camp up somewhere we know we need to get food to those people we need to do all this kind of stuff we need to have the support to be able to do it we can list those out we should be able to list those out we we know how long people need before they get a day off we know all this stuff and so we got we got to be good at that part and then we also need to be good at that that nonlinear thinking part of it about how the systems interact with each other and that there's that this we we that that whole principle of prediction that that we if we're just good enough we can predict an outcome no and we 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 can't define the root variables of every problem we can't sit there and go hey you brush brush is a great example at about 60 percent live fuel moisture brush is on or it's off but how much dead it has underneath it, how much um, the slope. There's a few other different nuanced things, but brush doesn't just gradually get to a point. It like doesn't hardly burn or it's like gasoline on a stick. Yeah. And so what do you do there is you need to be more iterative about your decision-making and you need to allow decision space for people in the field to take certain actions based on what occurs on that, on whichever slope they're on, on that moment, on that day. Yeah. And if you try to be predictive about, well, the, you know, break it down to the things you know about it's eight year old brush. It's got this live fuel moisture. It's on a South facing aspect. You know, it's, we're at this drought indices. So the soil moisture is probably X, Y, Z. It, it, it maybe builds a box, but at the end of the day, you still got to give the decision to that guy that's out in the field. Distributed decision-making. Yeah. And it goes back to what you said as well. It's got to be iterative. Uh, and the time frame between those iterations has to be reflective of the environment you're in, the threat you're facing, the individuals. And they've got to have that ownership and accountability of, of kicking that clock, you know, making it roll and making the decisions as they need to do. And obviously cascading the information of what's going on back upwards and down. But that's that's got to be the challenge when, when you're working from region down to the front line of firefighters. How is that information being relayed and those decisions being made at the moment? And do you foresee this is where you wanted to take this, Jason, with this devolved decision making going as low as possible? Well, when you synchronize, so, I, and I've, this is, this is like all Jason's mistakes. So I used to be, all right. So at this meeting, we're going to do this. At this meeting, we're going to do this. And you got to build a framework and it's good. But the meeting, is this isn't the success that's effort put towards something that's successful it's making sure that people are synchronized so they know so we know what's going on in the field and they know what what they can do that varies based on how much the environment's changing mm-hmm. you know if you're making a budget two years ago to predict inflation over the next two years or you're making one right now I bet if you had a choice you would synchronize to the whatever relevant factors made up that decision more frequently now 
than you would have two years ago. Right. And that's, and that's something that when we get, when we don't spend the, and I honestly don't think we spend enough time teaching people these skill sets because we, the first thing we teach people is all this very linear stuff because it's the process stuff. It's the basic trainings. It's all that kind of thing, which is, you know, it has a role before you start leading anybody. You need to get better at the other part. You need to get better at the nuance and it shouldn't take 10 years to get better at it because you have to go through all these practical problem solving efforts. We should be creating an environment that makes it easier for people to get better at it more quickly. Yeah. And that highlights those those critical thinking skills that aren't intrinsic to the basic day to day job. If I had my way, I you know some people people often tell us you know gosh you guys should t- teach college class on on red team thinking we have I used to teach a class on this at, at uh, Haas School of Business at Berkeley guest lecturer right now at, at National University of Singapore Marcus you begin guest lectures at Warwick Business School in the UK but my response is always. Honestly, this stuff needs to be taught in secondary school. This is where it has to begin because there isn't a job today that doesn't need applied critical thinking, that doesn't need to understand the impact that cognitive biases have on our decision-making. It doesn't, couldn't benefit from just a little bit of understanding about how decisions are made, how they can be made poorly how they can made, be made better. I think it's just a basic life skill now. And it used to be taught in at least some schools, but not for not for a long time, not for, for decades, honestly. Um, and it's something that, 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 that if I could wave a magic wand, I'd just make part of the curriculum of every secondary school program in the world. You could go the, the model that I had, which is I have a dad who's in special forces and I failed to appreciate all the different times when he would challenge me about things and make me explain why I thought something and why my viewpoint. It wasn't like I'd be wrong, but he he wanted me to explain why I felt that way and and why I had that viewpoint. And you know, is there anything else that could be true? Is there is there any other possible causes that you haven't considered? And he wouldn't say it that way, but he would make me think about it. Yeah. And to this day, when we have conversations about stuff, even when I'm working on my doctorate, I'm like, I better be squared away when I talk to him about this because he'll ask probing questions. And that's just the way it was around the Coyle household. And that, that works out. But you're right. You, you don't just get there. You don't right. just, you got to practice it and you got to be persistent. And you have to recognize what your culture did that was good and what your culture did that removed uncertainty where it shouldn't have been removed. And I think that's a lot of what's going on right now is people, they're in group, oh, this must be that, you know, cause and effect. And I don't know. There's, it's, it's complex. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, complex. it's complex, but it's yeah. simple. It's first principles, like you said, you know, and, and that's why, you know, start young. I love it. Yeah. We should all have, all have, a, have, have the benefit of, of, of that sort of perspective in our youth. Yeah. I remember the best teachers, going back to your dad, Jason, the best teachers I had, they'd come and sit on the desk next to you and you've done all your stuff, your workings or whatever it is, your building or writing. And the best ones used to say, they'd say, Marcus, talk me through your thinking on that one. Not show me what you did, talk me through your thinking. And I used to sit there and think, yeah, and then you'd have to explain the thought process you went through. And then then dissecting that and really helping you 
understand what your brain was thinking and doing as you went through step by step really solidified the understanding of what you were trying to achieve and how you'd done it and how you could do it differently at different time and how it worked well or how it failed. But it's that understanding how you are physically thinking and then also understanding how others around you are thinking. Right. You know, it's that situational awareness, it's self-awareness, but it's awareness of others. Because as you said, Jason, numerous times, you know, there's many pieces in this puzzle, social, environmental, people, and the different crew on a different day will be have a different outcome. And understanding all of that, and the more you can align people and bring that clarity together, I think is one of the biggest and toughest jobs of leadership today in any environment. Absolutely. Well, this is great stuff, guys. We could talk forever about this, but unfortunately, our time is up. Jason, we'll have you back on, continue the conversation in the future. Thanks for joining us. Tune in next time. Be Bryce and Marcus talking. Indeed. But we'll love to have you join us. Take care. Take care. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss the next idea-filled episode. Also, check out Bryce and Marcus's YouTube channel, Red Team TV. There you'll find video of today's podcast as well as previous episodes. And don't forget to visit redteamthinking.com to learn more about Red Team Thinking work and Marcus and Bryce's upcoming online courses. While you're there, take our free quiz to find out how you rate as a Red Team Thinker and if your organization has a Red Team culture. Because who thinks wins? <laughs>